Well, good morning, church. Glad to see you. Glad you're here. Ushers, if you'll come forward, please. We're going to share in our offering together. Now, let me just say a couple things about it. So, ushers, just come down here and wait for us for a moment. Um, a couple of things for you that we mentioned last week that we're going to be reinstituting taking our offering. Uh, we have been doing that either online or through offering boxes. But we've talked about it last week as one of our series about the church. And one of the things we learned in the first century church is that one of the fellowships they enjoyed was the fellowship of giving together. There's something about the church giving together. So we're going to be taking our offering and we'll come back to taking an offering on Sunday mornings. But here's the deal. We haven't taken one by basket, you know, format, you know, f- since COVID. And, you know, we're bringing it back from COVID. I mean, it's not like we're passing the basket with our teeth. So I think we're okay. Um, but here's the thing. For some of you, you're here and you're going, man, I, I, didn't, I didn't think about it to take an offering. I never thought about the fact that we're doing an offering today. So you didn't come here thinking about it. So don't think about it now. If you're visiting or new, just relax. Uh, I got a simple fix for us. So here's what we're going to do. Just one second. I'm going to have you turn to the person to your right and just say to them, don't worry about the offering. I've got you covered today. So that's it. <laughs> just, you know, just look at the person here, right? Dump. Listen, if you're new or visiting, relax. So don't get nervous. No one's going to do that. We do give together because it is part, Scripture calls it, this fellowship of sacrifice and giving together. You heard Russ talk about sending students to life, children's ministries taking place. Everything happens in the church. It happens because of faithful givers. Let me just offer a prayer and then we'll share in our offering. Father, remind me again that everything I have comes from your gracious hand because we don't think like that. You know, we stop, if we sit down and really think it through, we realize that, yeah, probably God provides it. But it's not a probably. What we have, everything we have has come because you are gracious in our lives, including the breath that I'm taking right now. So remind me of that. Remind me of the fact I didn't come into this world with anything. I'm not leaving this world with anything. It's all because of what you've given to me to take care of while I'm here. And so as we give to you, we do so as very thankful people for your grace in our lives. As we share in our offering today, I pray that you'll bless every person who gives. Some will give today in the basket. Some give already online. They, do, they text it in or they set up for automatic giving throughout the month. And so they're not doing it in the basket it here, but Lord, however they give, may they have that sense of blessing. We give this offering to you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we'll share in that, just a couple of things for you. Uh, Pastor Rutz mentioned a couple, but a couple of things for you. So this coming Saturday, we've got Summer Jam. It's a huge event, huge event with carnival rides, all sorts of things, of course, for kids and for families. One of the features, we have a train coming, a train that can pull around 36 adults um, through either on the parking lots or through the lawn. So that kind of, that's the kind of stuff we've got going on. Please be inviting, please be bringing, please be serving and participate in that. The other item is, I want to say thank you for responding last week as we talked about the, uh, the block party in North Avenue on August 13th. Um, I think 10 or 12, a dozen people signed up like that day to say that they would help. So thanks for doing that. This is a huge opportunity we have to minister to specifically families in the north end of Burlington. You need to know something, and that is we, we give away backpacks, school supplies, those things, haircuts and, and food, and that. it's a fun day, but we're helping them get ready for school. Do you realize we go through, we give away everything that comes in. Now, I don't mean we give it away just so we don't have to store it. We give it away because we go through it all. 
I mean, quite literally, hundreds of families come in to get backpacks and school supplies. So well, if you can't serve there, okay, I got it, but you can give uh, material towards it. You can give backpacks or even uh, donation checks. We use the money that comes in to go buy things. And so it's a, it's a huge day. And so thanks for participating, and hopefully that you'll, uh, you'll participate as you can. This morning, <clears throat> we're going to continue in our series. We're talking about the church. All about the church. Now, a couple. Now we're gonna. We're not finishing today. We've got a couple more weeks, um, uh, but we're gonna continue this morning. Next week, I want you to be here. Next week, I'm gonna talk about a passage of the Bible story <clears throat> that has always been troublesome to me. It's always been a problem. It's from Acts. It's a story of Ananias and Sapphira. Remember, remember those two. They they come to church for the offering. They come to church with their offering, and God strikes them dead. So I'm thinking that if we're gonna take an offering, we ought to study that passage. <clears throat> And we understand it pretty well. In fact, my title next week will be How Not to Die Given Your Offering, okay? So <laughs> that will be next week, How to Not Die During the Offering. We're going to look at that story. It really, it's been a perplexing story to me my whole life because you have people who are coming, giving their offering, boom, they're dead. I think it'd be good for, I think it'd be good for us to understand that. Um, so just so you know, you can survive the offering. We'll learn that next week as we talk about it. It's not about giving necessarily, and you'll see about that next week. So we're talking about the church. How, how did this obscure teacher, how did this obscure guy from Galilee, who was basically a slave under the Roman Empire, how did this guy in his story not only survive the first century but thrive? Now, we know he didn't live as far as, um, you know, didn't live without death. I mean, he went through the cross, the crucifixion, but he came back to life. And how does that story not just survive, but how does it, how does it thrive through the first century? You might recall that the, the home of, all, of the focal point of all Judaism was Jerusalem and the Jewish temple. And in 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was utterly destroyed, meaning the walls were torn down. The Jews were either killed, persecuted, chased away, taken into slavery. But on top of the Jewish people, the Christians, the modern day Christians were persecuted and killed. And the question would be, how in the world could the church survive? How could the story of Jesus survive? Now, what happens along the way, at some point in time, we're looking at a case. Now, you've heard this week after week, but I'll state it again. We're talking about a setting here where there's 100 followers of Jesus, between 100 and 125 followers of Jesus at the very beginning when he says, stay here, wait for the Holy Spirit, and then he ascends into heaven. They wait, Holy Spirit comes, and they begin to preach. They begin to tell the story. 3,000 people, then five. 10, 20,000. So the church is growing like crazy. And here we are 2,000 years later and one third of the world would claim to be Christians. So historians are looking at this going, how can that be? I mean, how, how is it possible that the church can be going so strong? Now, when a historian looks at it, they're going in with a thought process that says, there's gotta be some natural explanation. There's gotta be some way to explain this. And of course, they begin to look and to see how could that be. And, and they're reading the historical story. You got the churches growing and growing. You got a guy comes along who decides to stop the growth of the church. His name is Saul. Saul takes it upon himself to stop the church. He does that by persecuting and killing Christians. But we talked about that. Saul comes to Jesus. And Saul becomes one of the greatest missionaries ever. Uh, Nero had Paul put to death in 67 AD. Paul's now gone, but that didn't stop anything. That didn't stop the growth of the church. And here we are 2,000 years later. The Roman Empire is long gone. 
Ancient Judaism and sacrificial worship in the temple is long gone and destroyed. And yet here we are worshiping Jesus Christ. Now listen, friends, very sincerely. I don't know where you're at, whether you're a longtime follower of Jesus, maybe you're here for the first time. But if you just stop and pause and think about what I just said, that should get you to take notice. This story of Jesus is an incredible story. Empires have come and gone. And here we are 2,000 years later and millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of people around the world on a weekend like this will all stop what they're doing to worship Jesus Christ. It's an incredible story. And so the question I want to answer today is this, is the church today making a difference? The question we should ask, does the church matter? Does the church really matter today? Is the church relevant? Is the church, is the church, if the church suddenly disappeared, would the world even notice? Does our message today notice? I mean, does our message today make a difference? Do, do the people in our world, have we made a difference to the fact that they would even be aware if we weren't here? In our culture today, does it matter? Now, I'm going to say the answer is yes, but I have to be honest with you. If you watch and listen to many, many, many Christians, look what they post on social media, look at the dialogues they have, and look at the way they carry themselves. Most Christians, I would say, and maybe if not most, many, but I think it's most, most Christians, if you got down deep inside, would say, I really don't think it makes a difference, and I really don't think it's mattering much. Now, if I said today, how many of you think the church today in our culture makes a difference? Everyone would raise their hand. Why? Well, because you're in church and you know you have to. <laughs> I mean, that's why. Absolutely. Some of you would both hands. Like, I'm all in. But inside, if you're honest with yourself, you find yourself saying so many Christians going, da, it's all going south. It doesn't matter anymore. Let's kind of get ready to survive. That's the attitude. Does the church matter today? Absolutely it does. Does it matter in our culture today? Absolutely. Does it matter in your neighborhood? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the church has to get back to realizing that. Now, some of you are saying, calm down. You're a little fired up. <laughs> and my kids would say, don't worry about him. He's fired up all the time. It doesn't take much to fire me off. Yeah, my kids, just, just, they're just weary. They just annoy me so much. They just get fired up. I, I tell them that. You know, they deliberately do things to get me going. But just so you know, they're not getting me going on this one. Because I have to be honest, I hear more and more Christians viewing the world with this pessimistic view of it's, oh, it's so horrible and it's so bad and nothing, you know, what good can come of it? And I would say, do you not understand the story of the church? So it matters today. If we could see clearly, here's the problem. We're so in the picture, we can't see the picture clearly. My wife has heard me say this my whole traveling life. Whenever we travel different places, different cities, countries, wherever it might be, we'll be walking along and I'll see something and I'll say these words. I'd like to be in that picture. I want to be in that picture. Because you see something, you just go, oh, that's beautiful. And the thing is, I don't like looking at it from out here. I like, I want to be in the window of the restaurant when the people walk by and go, oh, I want to be in that picture. I want them looking at me and going, I want to be that guy. I want to be in the picture. See, but the problem is we're so removed, we don't get a, get a good view of what the impact the church has. I want to share some thoughts from, from Andy Stanley on this whole thing of the, of the, of the purpose of the, or the, the, uh, the difference the church is making. And he, he gives this story. 
David Aikman was the bureau chief for Time Magazine in Beijing, China for multiple, multiple years, many years ago. He's written multiple books. He's lectured in all sorts of Ivy League schools in Harvard, Yale, Princeton. And during his tenure being the bureau chief in China, I mean, he has interviewed all sorts of people, Mother Teresa, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Billy Graham, and big names. But while he was in China, he had almost unlimited access to people in the Chinese government and all these different ministers of different departments in China, and he actually interviewed a group of Chinese social scientists who were given the task, catch this, they were given the task to go research how it is that the West, now when they say the West, you know what they're talking about, right? Us. The United States is virtually the West. They were given the task, go study the West and find out how it is that they are so powerful. What have they done? What do they have that has made the West so powerful? So he interviews these guys and basically, make sure you understand this, they were given this task for this purpose. They were given the task to say, go find out what makes the United States so powerful so that we can copy it. And that makes sense. If you play sports and you're going to play a team next week who's really, really good, what does a smart athlete do? You study the game tapes. You study the history. You know everything about the team you're going to play so you know exactly what their strength is and how they do it, and so you try to counter it. So that's the plan. That was why they were commissioned for this job. Listen to some of these observations. He's interviewing them. Guy says this. We studied everything that we could from the historical, political, economic, and cultural perspective of the United States, of the West. They usually use the term West. At first, he said, we thought it was because you had more powerful guns than we have. Then we thought it was because we had, you had the best political system. And next, we then focused on your economic system. And then he said this, but in just the past few years, we have realized that the heart of your culture is your religion. And here was the exact quote. Christianity is why the West has become so powerful. Now, that's not our view. That's a social scientist group from China that are looking at us and see, here's the, here's the, here, we have to get this right. Here's the problem we have. See, we think what makes people powerful is money, economy, strong economy. That's what makes us powerful. Capitalism, you know, we're the kings of capitalism. That's what makes us powerful. We have armies. We got bombs. We have a navy second to none. That's what makes us powerful. And it's from the outside, an outside observer goes, nope, that's that. We thought it was too. So make sure you get that. They thought those were the things that made us strong. So they're saying, we thought that, but we looked a little deeper and found that really wasn't it. They're saying things like this. See, we found out that it wasn't capitalism that gave you the power, it was capitalism with a conscience. You see, it wasn't an army that gave you power, but it was army with a conscience. Yes, our armies have had a conscience. That doesn't mean everyone, that doesn't mean we get it right. But you know, many times I've read this in the news, I've read the historical documents, oftentimes that the United States is seen as the police force of the world. What does that mean? It means that other countries get in trouble, they call us and they, they trust us to come to their defense. Armies with a conscience. Again, not perfect. He goes on to say this. He says, the Chinese moral foundation of the social and cultural life was what made possible, I'm not, I'm not Chinese, sorry. Let me read it again. He said these words. The Christian 
moral foundation of the social and cultural life was what made possible the emergence of capitalism and then the successful transition to democratic politics. We don't have any of that. They said what they found was there was a moral value system that they put into Christianity. It was Christianity in, in, in the social cultural life that gave it strength that allowed capitalism to grow strong and actually then moved into a political realm which gave you political strength. And we don't have any of that. Then the final statement was this. As further proof, they said this. We have even learned in rural areas, speaking of China, in rural areas, when traveling evangelists, and we would call those people missionaries, when missionaries would come and introduce the Christian faith in rural areas, we found that opium addiction goes down, crime goes down, and catch this, and that the Christian families grow wealthier than any of the neighbors. That's an outsider looking in. So the bottom line is, does the church matter? Absolutely. But you may not be exactly sure how and why. So stick with me here for a couple minutes before we get to the text. Because I'll make a foundation for your thought process. Here's a key reason why the church matters today. Here's one of the key reasons why we cannot afford to be insider focused. I mean, I get we're the ones here. I get we're the one paying the bills. We're the ones taking the offering. We're the one volunteering. I get it. We are insiders, if you will. But here's why we cannot afford to be insider focused. Here's why. Because we are not only the stewards of the message of eternal life in the world. We're not just the standard bearers to the world that there is a way to defy death called eternal life. That is our job, without question. But beyond being the stewards of that message, we are also the stewards to people of the message of not just the eternal life, but we're the stewards of the message of a better life. We're the standard bearers for a kinder life. We're the standard bearers for having a better kind of life, having a better quality of life. So not only do we carry the message of eternal life, we carry a message that says there is a better life. So why is that? Why is it that, that there's this message out there that we need to take about a better life? Because if left to its own, the natural life does not evolve into the better life it devolves into a darker life let me can explain this real quickly if we look in nature just look in nature go to africa and you know visit the plains and here's a here's the pride of lions sitting on the cliffs sunning themselves but watch carefully when they get up and they're hungry and so they go after and they wrestle down an ox or something like that and they're going to have dinner and what we find is the you know the, the natural world says the biggest eats first so if you watch this story, so they, they, they jump on this ox and they kill it and they're starting to eat and rip it apart. But while they're doing that, you see all these other animals gather in place. Now, they don't jump in to eat because they're not the lion, they're not the pride. They got to wait their turn. So, you know, the hyenas, they're waiting and the jackals, they're waiting and the buzzards are waiting. And if you could put a camera on this and watch this kind of a sorry scene, but natural scene of life take place, you'd have the lions would eat and only when they're done do they go off and lay down. And at that point, if while they're eating, the hyena steps in, the hyena is going to be part of the meal. But once they're full, they just go a short ways away and they lay in the sun. They don't care who eats. Why? Well, because they've had their fill. And then all the other animals come in. If you could put the camera on long enough, you would see over the process of time, the smallest little creature crawling around the ground gets the, fi gets the final pieces of meat and dish. 
See, in the natural world, biggest reigns. The uh, one who has the might has the right. And that still comes into this world, our world. You see, what happens in the natural life, if you will, that we live today is our natural life left to its own is not good because the natural life that we live today in human nature, if you will, kind of still works the same way. Whoever has the money, whoever has the power, whoever has the wealth, they kind of go first and then whoever is left is, is get the leftovers. And when human nature is left to itself, friends, is not pretty. It goes bad. Now, without taking a lot of time, here's how human nature works. Might makes right. Biggest and baddest go first. I've got the wealth. I've got the money. You don't, so I'm in charge. I go first, and you just do what I tell you, or you get leftovers. Do you know why there's racism in the world today? Because of human nature. See, human nature says, I'm better than you. I, I don't know who you are. You're different than me, but because you're different, I'm better. That's why there's racism. Some of you have experienced racism, the bad end of it. I'm so sorry. And I'm not minimizing it when I say that's human nature, less the grace of God. That's why there's racism. Adultery is in this world. Um, you know, we live in a culture now that says, hey, sleep with who you want. You know, the people who sleep with whether they want. You know, in that world, what's interesting, you take a survey and say, how many would say adultery is wrong? And most people, 90% go, absolutely. And then why is it so prevalent? Human nature. Cheating and stealing. Cheating and stealing. The only reason that you don't cheat on your income taxes is the fear of being caught. Now, please know, for many of us, we go, oh, no, no, no. I have moral fiber than that. Okay, so imagine this. Imagine if the IRS sent out a memo that said, listen, it's a new day at the IRS. From this day forward, no more audits, no more prosecution. We're going to just tell you, we're going to ask you to, you know, be honest about what you take in and account for every dollar. But from this point on, honor system. How long does your moral character stand up in the tax world? Uh, bottom line is that uh, those things in place kind of keep us in check. If, if all of a sudden human nature is left completely to its own, it all goes south. Now, here's the point, and make sure you get this point. This is why the church is so important. The redeemed heart, the heart redeemed by Jesus Christ, the life that is redeemed by Jesus overcomes human nature. In fact, listen carefully, it is the spirit life that overcomes human nature. Nothing else overcomes it. That's why the message of Jesus is so important. The message of the church is the message of hope in Jesus Christ, and it alone changes human nature. And we'll look at a couple of verses today in Galatians chapter 5, written by the Apostle Paul. And what he does is this. In Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says this. Let's just talk real quickly about human nature, he says. And I'm going to basically tell you, left to its own, this is what human nature does. This is where human nature goes. He goes, I'm going to list, list some things for you. And then, then after that, I'm going to contrast to you, this is what a life in Christ looks like. A life that's empowered by God's spirit looks like this. The life left to its own looks like this. Here's what Paul says, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. So I say, he says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Let's just stop there for just a moment. He's basically saying this. Basically, whenever you, whether you want to admit it or not, whether you want to accept it or not, he says, go natural, you're going to go trouble. 
You go this natural life. You go human nature, just let it go. And human nature left to itself is not pretty. Human nature left to itself is going to go down a really, really bad road. In fact, what he's going to say next, we're going to read it in just a moment. He actually uses the word obvious. He says that human nature left to itself is the, the results of it are really, really obvious. Now, what he means by obvious is this. In just a second, I'm going to read for you. We're going to read together on screen. We're going to read the things the Apostle Paul lists as to what happens when human nature is just left to go on its own. And when we read the list, no one in this room, no one watching on the screen, no one listening to it when you hear the list is going to go, well, I never. (laughs) Nobody. In fact, as soon as I list them for you, you're going to go, I know someone just like that. In fact, some of you are going to say, oh boy, I I got to get a copy of that sermon because I know who needs to hear that because they're just like that. When I read the list, you're going to go, oh, I know some people like that. Now, if you're really, really honest, you're going to say this. I know some people who look just like that. And I see them every day when I look in the mirror. If you're honest, that's what you'll say. So what does Paul say? He listens. Here we go. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. The acts of the flesh are obvious. That's human nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Let's start breaking that down a little bit and walk through them. The acts of the sinful nature, he says, are the following. He starts with sexual immorality. I don't have to define that for you because here's what I know about every one of us. Every single person, when I say sexual immorality, you know in your mind something that you qualify as sexually immoral. I don't have to define it. You got it. You know it. And on top of that, you know what is sexually immoral. And while we point our finger of judgment at someone else who is practicing some kind of sexually immoral activity or lifestyle, while we point our finger at them, we know we fight with the same temptation in our lives so we got that we know in fact let's be real honest and transparent here men I'm going to just talk to the men for just a moment just uh, women just pretend you're in the other room for a second Um, men what would this world be like if every man in this world allowed their sexual nature to control their behavior one ugly ugly world If I was rich enough, if you were powerful enough, if there were no consequences, what would it look like? It would be very, very, it would be, it would be bad. It would not look good at all. In the first century, you need to know, in the first century, there was actually a culture where that was the case. In the first century, there's actually a culture where any kind of sexual immoral thing was, was okay. In fact, women were seen as something to be owned, as an object. That culture was called the Roman Empire. Go back and read history and you'll find the Roman Empire completely imploded on itself. Or imagine our world with no restraints. But Paul adds other things. He adds idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, ambition, dissensions, factions, all those things. It's going to hit a couple of them. Idolatry. For many of us, we go, oh, yeah, idolatry means worshiping anything other than God, anyone or anything other than God. And that's true, it does mean that. But I also say there's another subtle meaning in there that we forget about is that also it means, also means the idea of valuing things over people. 
when I value things over people, meaning this, I have a mentality that says, I don't mind making you feel less important as long as it makes me feel more important. Uh, that's putting you, that's putting something else before someone else. So idolatry, he's witchcraft. You say, what do you mean exactly by witchcraft? He means taking the things that Satan uses to deceive people and using those things, convincing yourself that it's okay as long as somehow it makes you feel better. And there's all sorts of stuff out there with the channeling and with channeling out there and crystals and all this stuff that we've got some Christians today that kind of look at and say, well, it's okay as long as I use it properly. And he says, don't be touching the things that Satan actually uses to deceive people. Hatred, discord, jealousy. Here's the problem with hatred, discord, and jealousy. You can't see that in the mirror when you look at yourself. No one typically looks at the mirror and sees hatred, sees discord, or sees jealousy. When I look in the mirror when it comes to discord, all I see is I'm right. That's what I see. I'm looking at myself going, man, you get it. But it's hard to see that in the mirror. But here's the reality. When you don't look at the mirror, you see the woman who's prettier than you. You see the person who's skinnier than you. You see the person who's more talented than you. You see the guy who's got more money than you. You see the guy who's got more power than you. You got the guy who's driving the car that you're not driving. You see the couple who seem to have it all together. You see the couple that have all the things that you want in your life. And you know inside you're very unsettled. And one of the things that typically we don't do well in our culture we don't celebrate someone else's success very well, especially when they're more successful than us. We just don't celebrate that well because we want it to be us. That's all called human nature. And what's interesting, Paul gives a list there, but he ends it by these words, and the like. That's how the verse ended. He lists all these things, and he says, and the like. Now, that term, and the like, is actually a Greek phrase that interpreted, we take it today as et cetera. That's where the word comes from, et cetera. That's the term he uses. So what he's saying is this. Make sure you get it right. Paul says, I'm going to give you a list, but it is not an exhaustive list. He goes, I'm going to give you some of them, but the truth of it is you can just keep adding to that list. This is what happens when your human nature is left to its own. Paul says, left unchecked, all those things come out in bad behaviors. Now, again, follow me here for a second. So in our culture today, in our modern society, what do we do to keep all these, this you know, uh, human nature issue, what do we do to keep it all in check? You know what we do? We pass laws. That's why we have laws. We have laws today to protect us when someone else's human nature goes crazy, the laws in place to keep them from hurting us when their human nature goes out of control. We have laws in place to keep us from letting our human nature get out of control. It's a deterrent. Laws are the reason why some of us are such good people. Because there's a check and balance in place that's keeping us in place. But Paul, after sharing with us, here's what happens when the human nature is left to its own. Then Paul says, but I want to tell you there's a better way. There's a better way in which to live. You see, the better way is the message of the church. It's the message of Christ. Does the church matter? Absolutely. Here's what Paul says in verse 22. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit, meaning the Spirit life, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, period. Against such things, there is no law. The fruit of the Spirit. You see, the Spirit, folks, the Holy Spirit is what energized those first century followers of Jesus. 
They went for about 10 days sitting around waiting for something to happen. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit hits them. And when the Holy Spirit comes into their lives, that's what made them bold. That's what made them fearless. That's what empowered them. That's what energized them. That's what caused them to give freely to one another. That's what caused them to sacrifice. It was the Holy Spirit. And the second that you say yes to Jesus Christ, the second that you invite Jesus Christ into your life, the Bible tells us immediately the Holy Spirit is placed in your life. God's Spirit lives, dwells inside of you. It's the Holy Spirit that then begins to do some work. And here's what the Holy Spirit does. Now, in, in, in perspective to what we're talking about, Paul says human nature by itself goes south, but... When you have Jesus Christ in your life, the Holy Spirit is now in your life and there's gonna be new behaviors because the Holy Spirit is now going to inform your conscience of how it should live, which means when you have the Spirit of God in you, all of a sudden you find yourself saying, oh, maybe I shouldn't do that. Where'd that come from? That comes from the Spirit of God. Maybe I shouldn't do that. Or actually for most of our lives, it's like this. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. You know, I went, and did, I went and did it, but it's like, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe I shouldn't say that, or maybe I shouldn't have said that. That's the Holy Spirit informing your conscience if there's a better way to live. We find ourselves in our head thinking to ourselves, um, maybe I shouldn't have that attitude. Maybe I shouldn't click on that website. Maybe I shouldn't listen to that person. Maybe I shouldn't have that conversation. Maybe I should tell the truth. Maybe I should help someone who's in need, whose need I see, and whose need God has put me in a position where I could meet it. Maybe I should do that. Now hear this. It's the spirit that even if there weren't any laws in the land, you'd still be inclined to do the right thing. You see, when the spirit of God comes into your life, all of a sudden, you have this inclination to do it differently And to do that which is right, even though no one has to have a law telling you what is right. And then Paul goes and rattles off the number of things that the Holy Spirit produces in your life. Um, Actually, I would say things that the world actually chases after, right? I mean, he starts off with love, joy, and peace. I mean, the whole world's chasing after that. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, the whole world wants that. So then he begins to rattle off in contrast to the human nature life, contrast to spirit nature life, and he goes things like this. He goes, love, joy, peace. First one's love. You know what love is, right? Love is you first. Love is take my seat. Love is, here, honey, you take the remote. Now, that's really love right there. (laughs) Or obedience, one of the two, kind of hard to tell. Here, you take the remote. That's what love is. Love is sacrifice for others, even when there's nothing to be gained. See, real love is when I care about you, even if there's nothing coming back for it. He starts with love. Then he adds in joy and peace. The, the culture today tells us sleep around is no big deal. You know, for the people who sleep around, you know what they lack? Joy and peace. And so he says, man, wouldn't you like to have that? Kindness and goodness. Now, he says that with a spirit life, you can enjoy kindness and goodness. Now, remember, if you would, that the Apostle Paul is writing these things to us, living under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And in the Roman Empire, there was no goodness and kindness. See, the norm for the Roman Empire was that kindness was weakness. And so that's not tolerated. So what Paul's saying is this. Do you know that when you have the Spirit of God in you, that actually you have the ability to defy the culture? 
That's what he's saying. Faithfulness. Here's what faithfulness is. We think of faithfulness as marriage, relationship, and being sexually pure. But here's, here's a simple definition of faithfulness. Faithfulness is this. If I said I will, I will. Faithfulness. If I said yes, then I'm going to do it because I said yes. Even if I said yes and then I find a loophole in the law, the law says, well, you don't have to. It says, well, I don't care about what the law says I have to or don't have to. I said yes, and so I will. And then you use the word self-control. Now, I'm not going to minimize all the others, but you just think about this self-control for just a moment. Self-control runs contrary to everything that happens in our human nature. We are not self-controlled people. You may have some area where you think you're self-controlled, but basically we are walking out of control people. That's typically who we are. Now, think about this for a moment. What if we had just one month of complete self-control. Now, I'm not talking about just you. Think about this. What happens if we had one month, every person in America, you know, let's not have too big a dream. Let's not talk about the world. Let's just talk about right here. In America, the United States of America, what would it be like if for one full month, every single person practiced complete self-control in every area of life? Think about that. You'd be skinnier. You'd be wealthier. You'd have more money in your savings account. Uh, you'd be richer, no question. Probably much fewer, if not hardly any arguments, no fighting. I'm not sure of no sin, but certainly less sin, less heartache, fewer broken relationships. And I'm not minimizing any of the others, but just think of the impact if everyone in the world just decided, let's practice self-control. What a different world it would be. Does the message of the church matter? Absolutely. Because our message is not just a message of eternal life, but it's a message of a spirit-controlled life, which is a better life. And again, we're going to flesh this out as we end. You see, the church matters today, and it matters in our day. And then the Apostle Paul ends this little section here, and he ends it in verse 23 with the, fi the final words, against such things, he says, there is no law. A lot of people read that, but don't really stop to think what it means. So he lists all these fruits of the Spirit. Against these things, there is no law. What he's basically saying this, when it comes to life with people and human nature, you have to have laws. Laws are the only things that keep us in check. But when it comes to this, these things that I'm listing, there are no laws. You don't need laws. I mean, can you imagine a world where we say, listen, we ought to put a law in place that says no more goodness. I'm tired of goodness. No more kindness. We have enough of that. Joy. There ought to be a law against joy. Now, I shouldn't use that one because some of you are so joyful. It does irritate me. So maybe there should be a law. But, I mean, imagine if we said this, too much love. We're going to put law in place because there's just too much love taking place. And, you know, self-control. Enough of this self-control. So Paul says this. In everything else in the world, you've got to put law in place because of human nature. But when it's a spirit-controlled life, there are no laws necessary because the spirit leads the way. When a person, when a family, when a Christian, when a church, when a community allows the spirit of God to transform their behavior by God's spirit, the need for laws, the need for rules, the need for policies gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Why? Because all of a sudden, I'm not the center of my world. All of a sudden, I'm not the center of your world. 
All of a sudden, it's not about me. Do you get the fact that when Jesus came, Jesus made his whole mission on life, he made it all about you. Here's a statement you want to take home, condense it down to the whole sermon to one statement. Because Jesus made it about me, I don't have to make life about me. That's the storyline. That's the storyline of Christianity. Because he made it about me, I don't have to make it about me. I can make it about you. How powerful is that? Does the message of the church matter? Are you kidding me? Does it ever matter? The message of a transformed life, a better life, for me, is powerful. But what you miss is when God's spirit transforms my life, everyone in my sphere of influence has a better life, or they're supposed to. When the Spirit of God has changed my life, I'm supposed to make your life better. So let's wrap up with a closing idea and a closing story. Now, I tell you right now, for some people, you're not going to like what I'm going to say next. Very, very sincerely, there are people, when, I, when they hear it, it will sound going to sound very arrogant. And if people don't understand it, they get really offended. And that is this. The church has never thought or ever believed that all cultures are equal. The church has never believed or thought that all cultures are equal. The church has never held, held to a position that all cultures are equally valued, that all cultures are equally helpful. We've never believed that. We've never thought they were equally helpful. We've never had the view that said, well, all cultures are just a little different, but basically they're all good. The church has never believed that. The church has always believed that the church culture, the Bible culture, is the superior culture in the world. Now, some of you should go, wow, you can't let that out because that sounds incredibly arrogant. But that's because you don't understand. Here's why I can say that. The culture of Christ is the culture of others first. The culture of the church is the culture of self-control. The culture of the Bible is where selfishness is put aside to take hold of selflessness. Listen, that's a superior culture. That is the best culture that you'll find in this world is the culture of the church, is the culture of the Bible. Now, admittedly, we don't always get it right. And people love to look at one or two and go, oh boy, that's the whole church. No, it's not. I get it. We still stumble, we still fall. But the culture of Scripture is a superior culture. The culture of Jesus says this. Jesus said these words, I want you to go out and to love others like I have loved you. Listen, the observation of those Chinese social scientists were spot on. The secret to the power, the secret of the success of the West has been the influence of the church in our world and in our society. This church, the church matters in the world. This church matters in this community. You matter and how you live your life for Jesus Christ with the spirit of God in you is critical to people's lives in our community.
Adrian Rogers, Adrian Rogers, some of you may know the name if you've been around for a while listening to Christian radio. He's now since gone home to be with Jesus. But Adrian Rogers was a, a Baptist pastor, well-known, pastored large churches, pastored a huge church in Memphis for years. Um, he had this, I mean, I didn't listen to him because he has this deep baritone voice that I always wanted. So I just jealousy when I hear him. So I, <laughs> I you know, I never, I never heard the message because I didn't like the way he sounded. But a really good guy. And uh, he was on a plane leaving from Memphis to go to the, to the West Coast. He got on the plane. As soon as the plane took off, he put his tray table down. He pulled out his big black leather Bible, holy Bible, flopped it down on, the, on the, the tray and opened it up and started to read. The guy next to him, gentleman next to him, reading a magazine. And after a couple of minutes, the guy with the magazine put the magazine down and said, can I ask you a question? I know it's none of my business and I, yeah, I don't want to disturb you, but I have to know, why are you reading the Bible? Now, in that moment, Adrian Rogers would say this. He said, I knew in that moment that I only have a soundbite moment. I, I don't have time to take the guy from Genesis to Revelation. I don't have time to say, hey, let me tell you a story. He said, I get 30 seconds to answer the question, why are you reading the Bible? And so Adrian Rogers said this. He said, sir, I've discovered that in this book are the solutions for the three things that plague mankind. I have found that in this book is the solution to sin, the solution to sorrow, and the solution to death. And that from those three things, all of our problems come from those three. The guy said, okay, thank you. That's exactly how you answer that. I mean, you know, let's be honest. The world's not going to go, oh, tell me more. They go, okay, thank you. Goes back reading his magazine. A little while later, the guy puts the magazine down and says, excuse me, I'm sorry to keep bothering you, but since we talked, I've been sitting here trying to think of some problem that doesn't fall into the category of sin, of sorrow, or death, and I can't think of one. So tell me more about what you're reading in your Bible. The church matters. Does it matter? Yes. Does your life live for Christ matter? Absolutely. Is the Spirit of God essential in your life? Without question. In fact, you have no idea how desperately the church matters to our world. Rome tried to kill. We talked about this before. I'll state it again. Rome tried to kill Christianity. And if you go to Rome today, you'll find more churches and more crosses than anywhere else in the world. Christianity will not be stopped. Why? Because the message of Jesus is powerful. Here's what we know. If there's ever a time for the church to be the church, now is it. If there's ever a time for Christians to look like members of the ecclesia, the gathering of Jesus, now is the time. When we live out a spirit-filled life, then there is power to shape and to change a culture. 1979, and you've heard me say this before, 1979, the more majority came together. You need to know that was, a de- that was the near death of the church. Because 1979, Christians said, we can be a political force. And God never destined, planned, dreamt, or wanted his church and his believers to be a political force. You see, this this world needs to change, but it's not going to be by political action of Christians. The cancel culture, we started that, 1981. 
a whole list of, of companies came out that said, don't support them because they do this, 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 this. And the whole thing was, all Christians, stand up and be heard with your vote. Listen, this world desperately needs to change. There's no question. There's places and things and, and, and businesses that we, I mean, we just, it turns our stomach. I got it. But change of the church, or the change of the world is going to be because the ecclesia says, Spirit of God is going to dictate how I live my life. Summer jam coming up. What family you bring and what kids you invite? August 13th. Where are you serving? North Avenue. Cornrow's coming. We invite him to come and say, hey, come and see what life is like living in the power of the Spirit of God. That's the church and it matters. Stand please. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your truth. I get so caught up as well looking at all the things and going, oh, does it even matter today what we believe? It does matter. I mean, me having eternal life, that's real, it's critical, no question. Having a better life, it, it's really, it, it's, it's key. I mean, I, I, I love the fact of all the things that you offer me when I follow you, but a spirit-controlled life means the people around me, they benefit. This world is a better place because of your church. May your church remember that we have a part and a role to play, and may we get about it. We've got plenty of time to sit back and relax and just enjoy your presence called eternity. So until then, keep us busy working for the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. This is